Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Francis Cody, Chief Marketing Officer of Havis Media Australia. Welcome, Francis. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it, it's an absolute pleasure because, you know, for me, the idea of having a Chief Marketing Officer for an advertising agency is quite unique and quite challenging, I imagine. Um, And the reason I say that is I always remember as a copywriter in Adland that the hardest thing was writing the credentials because everyone had an opinion. But tell me, what's it been like? And how long have you, well, first of all, how long have you been doing this and and what's it like? Yeah, thanks so much. It's uh, been a really interesting experience. For the last uh, six years, I was tapped on the shoulder about six years ago by, um, I think you know him very well, Mike Wilson, our ex-chairman of Havas Media. I was running my own business for about 14 years and he came and said to me, listen, Francis, can you do what you did for bands and do it for brands? And I was like, okay, that's an interesting proposition. What does that mean? He said, well, we're looking to set up uh, Havas Sports and Entertainment in Australia and would you like to come and run it? And I was like, no. Uh, And then we chatted for, I think we chatted for two years uh, on and off. Uh, And then he put a very propelling, um, you know, proposition to the table and I I decided to wind down my business and join Havas Group and ostensibly I was taken out of market and dropped into the Havas Group and to set up a greenfield position with Havas Sports and Entertainment and it was an amazing experience. So six years we uh, kicked quite a few goals to say the least, no pun intended. Our first win was Booper um, three months in which is pretty amazing for a little division and we could grow that quite quickly. The good thing with Havas was that we were able to use existing employees within the group to sort of castanet and support the division. So we slowly built the team up. We then won Gillette, which was a really huge win, and they've, uh, they're still a client five years later. I still work very closely with them. Um, and then we went into, you probably all know about the merger, so we bought out uh, a company called Harlan Media uh, about a year ago now, just over a year ago. And at the time um, when Virginia uh, had arrived, she actually ostensibly asked me, would you like to sort of slightly change roles and not run HSC anymore and um, sort of merge into a a wider role and look at the whole business of the Habas Mini Group, all the services that are being rendered under under the group? And I thought that was quite an interesting proposition, you know. And she mentioned that Europe and America have this function and really the role of the CMO is divided into kind of three core areas, two main areas, namely the marketing of Havas Media and what it stands for in the market, which we can talk about more. The second part is um, relationships with existing clients and discussions around opportunities across services, so um, outside existing briefs, uh, extension of briefs, and then new, new business. So looking at um, the market more broadly and finding opportunities in the market. Now, the third part is an area that she knows was I was very passionate about, which was I come from content creation, um, my, my history in the music industry and film industry. And when large content pieces come to the fore, I tend to executive produce those. So you've probably heard of a series called The Long Road I did with Destination New South Wales. Um, 
which is a fantastic piece of work, which we can talk about later. Um, so I pop my head up now and then on my bigger pieces of work. So it's quite an intense role. There's a lot going on, but really the two core areas are marketing the business to the market and then um, new business, both internal and external. It's interesting because when you said, you know, do what you did for bands, for brands, that was Mike Wilson's big insight, was it? <laughs> I think so. I think he, uh, well, he said something interesting um, and both Anthony and, and Friedman and also uh, Virginia consequently have said this, is that really the entertainment industry looks at, and we tend to look at the band or the group or the film in the middle and we wrap everything around it. And we've been doing that for 50 years in the entertainment industry. And I think the advertising industry tries to do that and is doing that more. And we place the, band, the brand in the middle and wrap everything around it. Um, obviously, when there's a single brand, there's obviously multiple agencies who are trying to do multiple pieces of work off that. So one of the offerings that we have where possible, not always possible, but is to have an end-to-end -end solution for, for clients. So There's another yeah. big similarity but also difference and you know I know from my experience with dealing with the music industry and mm -hmm. and the entertainment industry mm -hmm. is that they've they've out of necessity become very good at achieving a lot with quite little in the way of financial and and resources absolutely and they've yeah. done that largely through collaboration and partnerships haven't they correct yeah it's it's um people forget that Let's let's just. I used to manage a group called Thirsty Merc, a big pop group, very successful group. And people forget the extensions of a band are quite remarkable. So you'll have things like merchandising, you'll have partnerships with brands, literally doing launch events for the likes of LG or whoever. You've got the live touring circuit, so you're earning income off that uh, ancillary stream. You're also earning income off um, radio playlists. You're earning because every radio station has to play a licensing fee. You earn synchronisation fees when your song is used in a theatre production or a TV commercial or a movie or a short-form film. So there's all these ancillary forms of income that people don't really know outside the industry, um, which are, can be hugely profitable. Um, I worked with a group um, for a couple of years owned by a private equity firm called High Five, the children's group, and we flipped that group from being a TV only property into a live touring act who happened to have TV. Very different proposition. Similar to the Wiggles. The Wiggles were a actually a touring group who had TV. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of learnings from the entertainment industry. Um, I had a film festival for 14 years, the Bondi Short Film Festival. I, I, I curated over 3,500 pieces of short form content um, over that time and that helped a lot. Uh, when establishing an understanding narrative, I think, and learning about narrative of how you're selling something to the market. That's on a sales proposition, but just content itself, um, looking at what a good TVC can actually become um, or a really interesting short-form series like The Long Road, for example. And, and the other thing that's happened, as particularly to the music industry, but also the entertainment industry, is the, the digital disruption. You know, I know we throw those words around in marketing and advertising, but, you know, when technology fundamentally changes the way business is done, you know, in the music industry, it was about the recording and publishing companies picking up acts and basically squeezing them for as much as possible. 
you know, signing them up on a contract and, and making as much. But that changed because suddenly acts themselves could become their own publishers that have distribution through electronic. You know, they were still getting screwed a bit on some of the deals that were offered by the platforms, you know, Apple and Spotify because they wanted to take their chunk. But the, the bands and the industry really adapted to that change. Absolutely, yeah. In a way that I feel that a lot of brands still really struggle because they've gone from a pay-to-play mentality, except now pay-to-play is so broad, where do you spend your money? Absolutely. What do you think of the insights there? Yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating turn of events, really, the... the, the the headlines you could re- you could remember the headlines across Billboard and Vanity and all the major publications that the music industry was literally dead. Um, the MySpace era had been burnt to the ground. Um, but really, I think what everyone realised in the in the music industry is that they owned copyright, and people forget that copyright is king. If you have great copyright, you have depth of connection ultimately. So when they decided to connect with Spotify, which is part owned by the major record companies, which people often don't realise, is it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So they were kind of pushing their own catalogues through a platform. And people also don't realise, maybe they do, that a lot of the heritage acts, I mean, we've obviously seen the Joe Rogans and the, and the, the Neil Young situations, but a lot of the heritage acts are hugely profitable for them on the platforms because they're nostalgic. And they're getting remixed multiple times by modern artists and that copyright continues to roll on. So once again, you've got this self-fulfilling play going on. Mm. Um, and I think they were very smart to connect onto those platforms in a way that wasn't dominant but collaborative. That was what was the, the masterful stroke. You've obviously seen you, um, Vivendi as our holding Group which owns Havas, but they're also a major shareholder and were the predominant owners of Universal Club previously and now major shareholders. And they've also got other, like Canal. Gameloft, Studio Canal, Canal Plus, big film houses in Europe. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite an entertain- a diverse it is. business. You know? Yes. When yeah. we think of holding companies, you know, most of them are pretty much stayed in the tram tracks or the train line of, um, you know, advertising and, and communications. but uh, It's an entertainment behemoth, really. That's yeah. actually what it is, and I think that... that In the same way Dentsu is, and most people don't realise this, that the Dentsu in Japan is also an entertainment behemoth in Japan. Correct, yeah. I they think own TV stations, film... Radio, know, I think, as well. Yeah, full, a whole lot of yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, the interesting thing with Vivendi is that they... I think that's what attracted me to me to have us actually coming from the entertainment industry, is that they had that depth of their brothers and sister companies um, and there was an understanding that uh, entertainment kind of beats interruption, you know. It's, a, it's a, a device that can be used well in the consumer marketplace for brands. Uh, it's still developing. I think it's still got a way to go for all brands, as you said. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was far more enticing um, to be in, in, in involved with a holding group that was entertainment-focused. Well, for me, there's two big differences. Um between the music industry and brands and the film industry and brands, okay? And and just give me a second because the first is, while the music industry will develop a brand like the band, there is an absolute necessity for them then to produce content, albums, songs, you know, whatever it is, to keep that audience engaged, right? 
on the flip side, the film industry is all about brand reinvention because, in a way, apart from you know, uh, like Marvel have done, they've t- but they've taken existing catalogue and created the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and DC are doing it. But for the vast majority of film entertainment, it's really creating a brand from scratch and getting it up to speed as quickly as possible and then milking it on the decline because invariably it will decline. You know, it's very hard. I think, you know, when people try to mess with those brands, you get the jump the shark effect because, you know, if you mess with it, your core audience will walk away. Both of those things are in a way an antithesis of traditional brand management, which is about creating a brand and and being the custodian and managing it over a long period of time to maximise value. They are quite different, aren't they? They are, but I think probably the biggest similarity is they're still trying to tell a story, you know. I think by all three, whether you're building a video clip and to tell that narrative through that song, I think there's a linear play to the customer, I still think it. I still think the audience. Let's not use the word customer. I still think the audience is receiving a narrative. I think that narrative's got to be clear and, and engaging and interesting. But yes, I hundred percent agree. I think there's, um, I think there's an openness now for brands to change. So, so, sorry, sorry, Francis. Yeah. I, I'm going to pull you up on that. Sure. Because I think brands actually struggle with their brand story. Oh, I'm not going to right? disagree with that. Because, no, I agree because, with that. Yes. Because yes, I, I, they want to do that. Music and film or, you know, uh, movie entertainment, yes. absolutely at the very core of it, it is a storytelling creative discipline. But you would argue that they need to be doing that. Yeah, they yeah, need, need to, to be doing But they actually don't get the concept of story. You know, the number of times that agencies have said to me, we're storytellers, and then what I actually see is a, a, a an array of facts or, you know, that's not even a story. Yeah. You know, that because that you listen to a song, think of your favourite song, mm. and there's this sort of transformational feel, emotional mm. connection mm. with mm. it. You watch a great film, it takes you on the roller coaster ride with the transformational arcs, mm. you know, mm. whereas brands, it's more about consistency. And the thing about great storytelling is that it's not about consistency. Consistency in storytelling like consistent emotional response, is boring. Yeah. Predictability is boring. I don't want a story that tells me that Bloggo will clean my clothes whiter than white for 50,000 years. But if you have a brand, yeah, I know, you've got no argument. Okay. No argument whatsoever. No argument whatsoever. I think what's important, though, is what I was saying was that they have to do that. So narrative is that, as at the forefront of brand development, you would argue, right? If it's not, if it's not being done now, it, brand development can still go back to heritage. You can still look back to the past. That's still story, right? As long as there's an arc and the development of that arc, right? But you're right. Film does it very well, and so does music. Oh. And I think the music industry picked up a lot from the film industry. If you look back to the Tin Pan Alley period, when that writing was coming out of the New York, very, very early on. They were ostensibly trying to write films up music for film that would land in film, but it also land on radio. So they're actually having a dual play because yeah. they wanted to extend their copyright, right? So, but yeah, back to brands. I I, I have been pushing that for seven years that that it's critical that brands do this. I've always found it quite strange when a brand will say, right, we're going to do something completely new, and and we want a completely new idea and not continue on 
with something that's been working. Now, that's another thing. Now, if you've got a narrative that is working with an audience, you can change the story but not the process of the story. So you can change the theme of it, right, but not the actual narrative arc and continue it on. Series two, series three, series four, whatever you want to do. Well, the film yeah, and music industry do it all the time. Yeah. But so, so mythology is great, right? Yes. Brand mythology yeah. is a great source of story. And let's look at KFC. You know, when yeah. they they return to Colonel Sanders, and I was in a uh, KFC store, and they had black and white photos of the Colonel there all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. But then as an expression of that in the US, they've been doing celebrity Colonel Sanders. You know, they've been getting actors in to do different versions of Colonel Sanders in their advertising. Interesting extension of the mythology and making it contemporary and interesting. That's right. right. But it takes a discipline. And I'm just wondering whether one of the problems, because, you know, Absolutely, for a band and the people managing it, which you've been in, there is an absolute uh, reason for being very disciplined about the way that you manage the band Mm -hmm. as a brand. Mm -hmm. For a movie, there is absolute discipline. discipline. And I've worked with some of the big distribution and and movie houses and they have a discipline to it to create uh, uh, optimize, escalate, and then just ride out the way. Correct. You know they're not constantly in, uh, investing in or, or investing in it over and over again. That's right. They're maximizing the upfront and then riding it out through what used to be theatrical, you know, home, the, en- home entertainment, and, and, and now it, I think it just goes straight, One day. <laughs> straight to streaming. Yeah. <laughs> but but this is a to- that's what I meant before about it's a totally different approach to brand management, mm. isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's um I, look, I think there are some brands trying this at the moment. We we have a couple at the moment. Um we had a really we've had a terrific relationship with Destination New South Wales. Now they are a different beast because they are a government organization and the brand is the backdrop to the life that we live in our community, which is New South Wales in this situation. It's not a it's not a, a can of cola, right? Yeah. So they had the liberty to use so-called their product, which is the, the, the state of New South Wales, as the backdrop to a fascinating story, uh, six stories that we, we rolled out for them for the long road, using entertainment, Amy Shark, Guy Sebastian, Ocean Alley, um, Troy Casadaly, et cetera. Um, we well, use narrative. Sorry. Sorry, sorry yeah, sure. But, yeah, also... Because what people are buying in tourism is experience. Totally. And so yeah. it's, you know, it's a natural extension to expose people to that experience through storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. We also, we did go hunting for the insights and unearthing the why. And the why was quite fascinating in that we realised that when people travel, they tend to go directly to the location. What we wanted was people to sort of take a bit of a meandering experience on the way to their um, holiday. And we also understood that when you land, ju- jumped in the car, the discussion or argument would prevail around what music you would listen to. So music was actually a common denominator across multiple segments, you know. The audiences from 16-year-old, you know, indie rockers listening to Polish Club on, on Triple R and Triple J right through to country radio, ABC, listen to Troy Casadaly, everyone was discussing what music they were going to play in the car, whether it's an argument or a fight with your, lo- uh, a fight with your loved one. So that became another driver for us to build out this 
story that would tell a, a kind of an enticing, um, unearthing tale of a unique location in New South Wales that people may have forgotten about post that sort of catastrophic period of the fires. Mm. Um, so that was a very good example of imbuing entertainment, smacking it right in the middle of a brand approach to you, said customer, to try and entice you to, to visit and build visitation across the state. And I can absolutely see that working and extending. But uh, just to flip this back on you with your uh, <laughs> sure. uh, Chief Marketing Officer yes. of yes. Uh, Havis Media, can you take the same discipline, do you think, into a B2B marketing enterprise? Yeah. You know, because I often have meetings with agencies, media, creative, digital, whatever, you know, all PR, and they'll all tell me that they've got a story to tell me and then proceed to give me the uh, PowerPoint presentation, which is just a succession of slides with facts on it, that there's very few agencies that really do articulate a story for their agency. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, we're about to announce our, some positioning shortly. Um, but one thing we're very focused on is probably the experience that the client, customer, brand will have within the media environment. So that experience is critical. So whether that you've probably heard our meaningful, um, the work we've done on um, meaningful brands globally, what we do understand now, there's 350,000 people are involved in that across about 14 te multiple territories. Cynicism is incredibly high. Um, so looking at positioning the brand within an experience based on the customer's passions, dare I say it, is probably our, is probably our strength, I think. And... Um, but just outside that, most services rendered by agencies across the landscape are the same. They are very similar. And telling a story about those functional services really won't engage people at all, you know. And they tend not to engage brand custodians, you know, the brand leads. So I really think it often comes down to two things. What your understanding of the experience that your brand's going to play in that moment in time targeting you of a day or of a week or of a month. Second, the people. Do they actually like the people in the room and do they want to continue conversing? And is there an opportunity to learn from both sides? That's a very important thing. And is the actual company interested in the people that they're developing? So we've made a real strong kind of a mandate on, everyone talks about culture, right? I think culture is quite an amorphous thing. I think culture can change and move and develop you know, throughout the day. Yeah. Um, but if you can present to them a, a group of people that have a mandate to drive passion and culture within their business and they connect to that passion and culture, they're going to give you work. It's not complicated. It, I would argue, coming back to movies and films, if you resonate and connect with the story within that film, you're going to download it probably and watch it again and again, right? The similarity with choosing your agency, are you going to connect with those people? Do you like what they stand for? And what are they pushing out and what are they talking about? So absolutely, uh, chemistry and alignment of values is so important, yeah. right? Uh, I would argue even more so than all those rational things because, you know, to the point I often say to agencies when they're presenting their, in quotes, credentials, 
what's the purpose of this? And they go, oh, to explain to the client who we are. And I go, I think they understand the concept of a media agency. (laughs) When you say we do plan media planning and media buying, you've pretty much covered off most of it and then you can throw the other bits in. But but beyond that, there's a there's a necessity, especially in the competitive world we live in, to be memorable. And I think that's where a lot of agencies fall down because the way to be memorable is to actually mean be meaningful and to you know to your point about meaningful brands you know how do you create a brand because agencies want to be everything to everyone and in doing that you immediately become nothing to everyone you dilute yeah Yeah. right so so part of this is how do you stand for something and in a lot of ways you know we've got some amazing global brands you know uh, uh, Saatchi and Saatchi is the world of nothing is impossible right uh, uh, TBWA, you know, the disruption company. You know, these companies actually have something that is meaningful and built as part of their, you know, their global positioning. Yeah, yeah. But how do you then turn that into the story, the narrative, the thing that the hook, you know, to use a musical term, the hook that goes into the client's brain that they will remember and want to be part of? Well, it's a great question because I remember, I won't say the bank, but I, I got a I got a um, EDM from a bank last week that I banked with. And they said, oh, Francis, we've got a discount on wine. Right? Now, I don't drink much wine. I drink a little bit, but I prefer whiskey. And I like surfing and I like script writing. Now, I have been banking with that, company, that business now for what, I don't know, five years, give or take. They have no understanding of truly probably what I would define as my data points, what I'm actually interested in, right? I've got my two mortgages with them, right? Uh, I've got some money with them and they have no understanding of who I am. Do you have a credit card with them? Yes. Well, they know what you're buying. This is another they should, have, they should have seen that you're buying whiskey. Correct. And also multiple surfboards at the at the, at the up. The upset nature of my wife. Or or wax. Or wax, yeah. I think without stating the leading obvious is that if you're not connecting to the data points of your customer set or your audience that you're targeting, which is namely their bloody passions, what are you doing? Mm. Like literally, what are you doing? And that dovetails into loyalty. That ostensibly builds out giant loyalty. Mm. So I think if if you're not doing that, there's a big problem. There's a huge problem. And if you're not, uh, you've, you may have heard this before, but more broadly, we talk about brand positioning at Havas a lot around functional, personal and collective. You know, And I think it's a great um, troika. I think the approach to functional, if it's on the tin and it does what it says, tick, that's a good thing. Same with an agency, right? All those functional services are there, right? We hope that you can do them well. Tick, right? You'd assume that, you know, being part of a holding group, you'd probably be doing that okay. Tick. Personal. Do you have a personal connection? And what is the relationship with those account teams to that brand? And the brand leads in that. So, and then finally, what do you stand for in society and community? You know, um, what programs are you putting out to the world and to your staff or to your staff and to the world that are meaningful and important? Um 
uh, we've done a, a whole series of pieces of uh, cultural work pushing out recently. You've probably seen all the International Women's Day work, but also letting people travel around the world and be where they want to be for four weeks and not put stress on them and to be with their loved ones and work remotely at least three hours a day to reconnect with their families because we place that at the core of a functional person's working day. If they don't have that connection, there's a big problem. Get overseas, go and see them, given the fracturing anomaly of COVID. Those three areas we apply to brands, I would say we also apply that to our approach to the agency, back to the market. Um, and also we would hope that in this very restricted period of talent, you know about this all too well, we hope that talent sees this. We hope that talent goes, you know what, they actually care. They're actually interested in this. Um, yeah, I might choose that agency over another agency. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's probably critical that we're treating ourselves and our approach to B2B as we are how we treat our brands. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, yeah, because I'm very aware of the Havis sort of global positioning yeah. and, and the research that sort of underpins that, yeah. you know, because the idea that so many brands and so much activity is actually wasted. 75% of them. Yeah. Because people just do not care yeah, because there's no meaning to it. No. Right? I think meaning has to be defined. You know, I think it's important when you're unpacking that customer set, what does meaningfulness mean to that audience? What does it actually mean? It, it can vary. I, I, I like the idea that, um, you know, meaningfulness is having that space in someone's mind. Yes, absolutely. And, and I would say that a Byron Sharp... Byron Sharp. Byron Sharp yes. uh, identified this. You know, it's that mental availability. And we see this when we're talking to clients about agencies. You know, clients mm -hmm. will come to us and go, I'm after a media agency. Yeah. Okay, what do you want them to do? Well, I want them to do things that media agencies do. <laughs> well, that's great. What don't you want them to do? Well, I don't want people that do X, Y, and Z. Okay, well... Here is the set, set available to you that don't have conflicts with your business, okay? So then from that point onwards, what we need to do is to then work through which are the ones that you would consider meeting with because that could be quite a long list and we want to get it. Now, the thing that we find is that marketers usually only have mental availability for three agencies. You know, it's that power of three. The one they're with usually the one that they've either worked with previously mm -hmm. and then one other, okay? And it's really interesting because they will, you know, have this sort of very focused view of the marketplace. And when we're putting up agencies that they may not know, they'll ask lots of questions to really understand how does that compare to these three that they hold in their head, mm -hmm. How is this going to be better or different or in, even interesting? Interesting, yeah. You know, to get their curiosity. Yeah, I'd like to make... So, because we're asking them to go from what could be a list of 12 or more... Down to three. Down to four, three five. or four or five yeah. to meet, just to meet with. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so it's, it's quite an interesting, you know, dynamic when you see them going through that decision-making, that mental availability of how many they can actually hold. Hold, yeah. I think also... That mental availability, what I like about meaningfulness as well and placing that in the in the media experience moment is it asks them to ask a question to themselves, which yeah. I think is quite good. If you can try to 
force the question to be asked of the individual. I think you're probably one slight, not one step ahead, but you're at least half a step ahead. Um, because I think defining what meaningfulness is to the individual helps you to position where your brand's going to go. Um, because you'll have a position on meaning and hopefully it aligns to what your brand, as a, as a CMO marketing person, you know, hopefully your approach to meaningfulness and the experiences you're going to deliver that brand into are going to be connecting, hopefully, with your passion point. So I like the fact that we're in a position where we're questioning them on what it stands for, for them, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So, yeah, how do you then turn that into a long-term conversation? A long-term narrative because the other thing the other trap I see for agencies is that they'll do a repositioning or they'll do a relaunch or refresh or whatever they want to call it and there'll be a big hurrah there'll be a big announcement there'll be the video there'll be the uh, the social media presence and then it just all fades away well I think you met you referenced the film industry right I think um, if the copyrights good uh, it'll be around for a while. So there's always a big front up the beginning part. Um, I would ar- always argue that the proof is in the pudding. So the output and the work that is being done is the true reflection of any concept of a refresh or launch. Generally, when a refresh of an agency happens or a repositioning, it is based on the work that you've done and you've found out some work that's resonated with clients continually. And you're like, you know what, that's probably quite a fertile space to play and I think other clients might like this. So really the answer lies in probably the type of work that you're doing and will continue to roll out. That's how you sustain it. Yeah. You, know, you can talk about yourself till you're blue in the face, but it's kind of irrelevant. CMOs and the marketing leads don't care. What they're interested in is the work you're doing. That's mm. what the, I mean, the amount of times we get called up and going, how did that happen? How did you make that? I mean, literally, can we do something like that? Well, it costs a bit more money. Um, but really the work is the, is, the, is the proof in the pudding and that will create the long tail. And I think every agency and everyone has a right to do their little launch at the front end to get a bit of, cut through a little bit of noise. But really, ultimately, that's only a little flutter at the beginning. The truth is in the output, you know. And if that output's there and is doing well, most importantly, is there a return? Is there actually a return? You can do a lot of highbrow work, but if, you know, classic case with DNSW, you know, it's got to have a return. It's got to drive visitation, you know, and it did. It drove millions of dollars worth of visitation back to those locations. That's what the marketer will be benchmarked against. Um, And so is selling razors with Pat Cummings. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, in your role, do you think part of the value proposition that a CMO for an agency delivers is actually bringing about that discipline? You know, but beyond beyond doing the launch, yes, it's in some ways you're the band manager <laughs> that keeps the band turning up on time with the right playlist in the right <laughs> outfits. You know, and, and not and, too much gel. And, and, and just to make sure that the audience gets what they're paying for. Yes, it's a fantastic analogy. Um, yeah, uh, Virg and I have been working very closely on um, pitch review. So when we go for a pitch, um, come down very close, final two, or we win a piece of work, why? Review it. Let's look at it. Is it matching up to the previous bit of work? Now, there's always going to be um, nuances for any pitch and, you know, um, and to your point, they're only looking at three. The one they're with, the one they're with, what was it? The one they're with, the, the, the one, one they're with prior, and then, <laughs> and then one more, you know. Yeah. 
But yeah, I, I think one of the it's a terrific, terrific point around guide rails, you know, because the most successful films, the most successful bands, and I think the most successful agencies have guide rails. They literally have an expectation on the team's approach to a particular work or pitch uh, or response to brief, you know. Um, and being that band manager, I get it's quite funny because Verge, that's what Verge says regularly. It's like you're kind of band. a band manager, you know. So it does feel like that. Um, but I've just got a couple more um, areas of media expertise under the belt than a, a drummer, a bass player, a lead singer and a guitarist. <laughs> well, except that you've got to pull them together to play harmoniously. Harmoniously, correct. Yes, <laughs> a beautiful symphony of creativity. Yeah. Uh, look, we better stop this before we make ourselves and everyone else sick. <laughs> Hilarious. Look, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you uh, making the time and coming having having a chat. Thank Thanks. you so much. Been fantastic. Look, before you go, I've got a quick question for you. You know, um, obviously uh, deep in the music industry, uh, just yeah. You know, let's do the Desert Island. What's the band and the film that you would take to that Desert Island? <laughs>